0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, thank you, worship band. Good morning, Bethel. You guys can be seated. My name is Clint, and I want to add my welcome to Adam. So glad you've joined us this morning for worship and to open up God's word. So let's do that together. Let's get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today as we continue our series on the book of Mark. First, I want to play a little game. It's a game that I played with my kids when they were very, very little. You know, little kids, uh, once they kind of get the age where they can actually start to talk a little bit, and they can actually identify and remember objects, you play this game called Say What You See." Now, we got a lot of smart people in here, adults and kids alike, so I have full faith in y'all's ability to make a 100, make an A on this little Say What You See quiz. So, we got a couple pictures. I'm going to put up a picture and just say what you see, okay? First one. Okay, what is this? A shoe. All the guys said shoe. All the ladies were like, it's a stiletto, pumped. It's a shoe. That's what it is, a shoe. Okay, we're doing great. Next one. Purse. It's a purse. Thankfully, no one said man bag. Okay. Snake. Snake. Yes. Thank you. Okay. One more. Now, some of y'all said beer. Some said coke. Ice. Thank you. A bucket. A bucket of some cold beverage. Okay. Finding out a lot about y'all's hearts this morning. Okay. That's right. Y'all did great. But what if I told you those actually weren't different things? They weren't the things you thought they were. Those were all cakes. Those are all cakes. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Cakes. I know. Y'all, all the kids are going to want different bir- Mom, you got me a lame birthday cake. I want a snake cake for my birthday. Yes. Hopefully, none of the kids want a beer cake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, today, our passage is all about those times when our eyes are Y'all, Y'all have great eyesight. Your eyes are working just great. But sometimes, our eyes can be working fine, but we still can't see. Today's passage is all about our ability, or probably better said, our inability, to identify something correctly. It's about those times, again, where our eyes are working just fine, but we don't really see what we are seeing. We don't understand what something really is. Now, this was a game. It's no big deal. But what if the stakes were much higher? What if your soul was at stake? And your ability to truly identify what you see. That's what Jesus is gonna say today. Today, Jesus is going to say how you see Him, it determines everything about who you are. And so, this is our big idea for this morning. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. And this passage, this chapter, it's going to open up with a very familiar scene. You're going to read it and you're going to say, I feel like we've been here before. And it's true. It is a repetition. In fact, we can summarize it because we've seen this almost exact same thing in chapter 6. Back then, it says Jesus fed 5,000. Here in chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 this time. And it is essentially Jesus repeating himself. Parents, you, you can identify. You know what Mark is having to do here. You know what Jesus is having to do here. He's having to repeat himself. And in fact, I encourage you. This week in your study, go look at chapter 8 and then go look at the event in chapter 6 and see how many parallels you can find that are repetition. But it's essentially the same message. Here's the message from this miracle. Jesus is the compassionate Messiah who provides and calls you to participate. That's, that's the lesson in chapter 6. Is the lesson here. So why, if he's already said it, why is he repeating himself? Because, y'all, his disciples are dense. They are still not getting it. So Jesus has to repeat himself. And we may ask, how can they still not get it? How can this be? Well, the answer is quite simple. Sin. Sin blinds us. So let's begin reading in chapter 13, after Jesus has fed the 4,000. I'm sorry, verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus, he's just with his disciples now. And he's going to use a teachable moment because the disciples are still worried about the bread. (laughs) We're going to do the bread. Okay. Let me teach you a deeper spiritual truth while you're worried about bread. And so he talks to them about leaven, and this would have been a familiar concept to them. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Leaven is something that may be small, it may be unseen, but it is pervasive, and it is integrated. And so let's say you took a loaf of bread, and I said, okay, in this loaf of bread, point, point the yeast out to me. Where's the yeast? And you say, well, it's everywhere. It's all over the whole loaf. I mean, maybe at the beginning I sprinkled just a little bit on there, but it is now spread, and it is pervasive. And what if I said, okay, but take the yeast out of the bread? Well, you can't. It is completely integrated and mixed in to that bread. So what is the leaven specifically of the Pharisees and he even says of Herod? It is self-righteousness and self-sovereignty. We've talked a lot about the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. I will earn God's favor. A couple weeks ago it was, I will make myself clean. I'll do the cleaning here. And then Herod, he represents self-sovereignty. You may remember Herod from this episode. We found out what he did to John the Baptist. He was all about John. Happy to listen to John. Loved him some John the Baptist until he was called to repentance and obedience. And then it was off of his head. Well, because I'm the king of my life, thank you very much, I'll make my own decisions. So, wait a minute. Hold on. It sounds like we're saying the disciples are like the Pharisees and Herod. Yes. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought disciples were the good guys. Pharisees, Herod were the bad guys. Well, y'all, this is not an Avengers movie. There's not the good squad and the bad squad. No. In real life, Jesus is saying, all of us, all of us, have pervasive and integrated self-righteousness and self-sovereignty. And that leaven blinds us all, is what we're going to find out. Now remember, remember, this is almost comical. Jesus is coming from having miraculously fed a huge crowd for a second time. Now he's trying to teach a deep spiritual truth to his disciples and look at their reaction. So he tells them, 11 Pharisees, they're not worried about it. You think they be like, oh, no. Verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I think this, this right here, is the moment that Jesus came the closest to having an aneurysm in his life. I don't know how he didn't flip into a Con 5 conniption fit here. Parents, you've been here. You know this. This moment where you are so stunned by the idiocy unfolding in front of you that all you can do is pray for God to help you not wring somebody's neck. You know, okay, don't say amen out loud, but we've all been there. I don't know how he doesn't just scream at them. Stop worrying about the bread. We're not talking about just the bread. It's not just about the bread. (sighs) Think of all the disciples had seen. Think. Of all they have heard him say, but they're just like Winnie the Pooh. Just all they can think about is the rumbling and their tumbling. That's all that's on their mind. Bread, bread. Where's the bread? Where's the bread? We're home. But y'all, Jesus isn't like us. I got to be honest in this moment. I don't think he gets angry even a little bit because I don't think he is surprised. He isn't surprised by their lack of understanding. He came to heal the sick. He came to give sight to the blind. And so I think it's actually with all the patients in the world that Jesus responds to them in verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of piece, broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. In the seven for the fourth house, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus, in this moment with the disciples, he turns into an optometrist diagnosing their blindness. He says, You have eyes, but you're not seeing. You've had experiences with me, but you have not correctly identified me. Your hearts are a hard. They have not been molded and shaped by your experiences with me and by what you have seen. So he gives them a pop quiz. How, how many leftovers the first time, guys? You just almost hear them. They know by now they've missed them 12, 7. A lot of people talk about these numbers and what do they mean and the significance. Listen, really, in the context, these numbers are simply showing abundance. That's it. They had seen Jesus two times over provide over and above the needs of people who could not provide for themselves. That's the point. That's the abundance. Which means the disciples did not have an information problem. They knew what they had, they had seen. They had been there. They could see what he did, but they could not understand the significance. Their hearts were blind, even though their eyes were working just fine. And then, so I had to wonder this week: you know, if that can be true for them, if if they can be this close twice and still not see, well, what hope is there? How does anyone see? Well, Jesus is about to show us. Verse twenty-two. They came to Bethesda, Bethsaida, excuse me. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything Clearly, now this healing is interesting, it is unique of all Jesus's healings because for this man, seeing was a process, it was a process, it didn't happen all at once. He sees something at first but doesn't quite understand what he's seeing like trees walking around, he he doesn't quite understand yet. Well, who does that sound like? The disciples. He is a walking parable of the disciples, and so Jesus touches him again, and then it says he sees and understands everything clearly. The message here is that understanding Jesus, seeing Jesus, is both a process and it's a miracle. It's interesting in verse twenty-three. So he, he this miracle, he doesn't do amongst the crowd. In fact, he leads this guy away from the crowds. Why? Well, this miracle appears at a very important transition in the book of Mark. This right here ends Jesus' public ministry. The public ministry is done. And so from here on out, Jesus is going to shift his focus really to two things. Number one, his inner circle, the disciples. See, many thought until now, the plan was Jesus going everywhere and doing it all. The crowds. The crowds are the plan. And that's the plan that makes sense to me, makes sense to everyone. That's not the plan. The plan is actually repetition and relationship. He is going to invest in these 12 again and again and again until their sight is fully healed and they can see everything clearly. Then... Once he's done that, he will send them out to bless and to multiply. That's the process. That's how it's going to work from here on out. So the the first shift is away from his public ministry to his inner circle. The second shift is to the cross. The cross. From here on out, Jesus is making a beeline straight for the cross. And he begins talking openly about it three times. He's going to tell his disciples exactly what's going to happen. And at first, they don't get it. He has to keep repeating himself. But why? The cross is the miracle. The cross is the miracle that will heal your sight. That's what he's trying to tell you. And you don't get one without the other. You don't get sight without the cross. Yes. So immediately, right after that, he heals this man as a process. It's a miracle. It's a process. And he shifts back to the disciples. Hello, Mark and Sandwich. We've talked about this. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus gives his disciples another pop quiz. First question to Leah. What do others say about me? You know, Elijah, John the Baptist, another prophet. We saw this exact same thing in the episode with Herod. And you know what's interesting? They're on the right track. They're close. It's like they can see people walking around, but they're not quite sure. It looks like walking trees. They aren't there yet. And then he makes it personal. He says, okay, what do you see when you look at me? And in that moment, he's like the eye doctor. You know when he flips on the light for that little reading chart? He says, okay, can you read that bottom line for me? And what do you know? Peter can see. And he answers rightly, you are the Christ. Now, when I was a kid, I thought Christ was Jesus' last name. You know, Jesus Christ, you had Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, little brother and sister Christ. It's not his last name. Christ is a title not a name. It's the Greek word for Messiah. That's who Jesus is. Now, lots of theology there. We could talk for hours about all that means, but let me just sum it up to say the Messiah, dating all the way back to the Old Testament, was the divine king who would bring God's kingdom. That's who Peter is saying Jesus is. He is the one God would send who would save us, who would make all things right, who would do away with sin and would establish forever the kingdom of God. And so that sounds great, and it is. And so in their minds, everything associated with Messiah is triumph and victory, which makes what Jesus says will happen so surprising. Verse 31. And he began to teach them, The one who God would send, who's our only hope, predicts four things about himself. Suffering, rejection, death, and then resurrection. And he says these things must happen. The suffering is necessary. It is essential. Why? Because you don't get the miracle of sight without the cross. This is how he will heal us. Without this, none of it matters. All the show, all the miracles, the signs, the feeding, the walking on the water, none of it will do for us what we really need. Because through that suffering and death, on the other end will come new life. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, listen guys, the road I am on is the road of suffering, rejection, death, but my destination is new life. That's how we're going to get there. And Peter hates this idea, hates it. See, suffering didn't fit his idea of what a Messiah should do. So Peter, he's again, he's in the process. He's almost there. He can see who Jesus is. The problem is now he wants to use Jesus for his own purpose, namely to be a political leader. And Jesus identifies his core issue. Verse 33, what does he tell him? You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. And there it is again, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, the self-righteousness and self-sovereignty that blinds us to who Jesus is and what he is doing. We'll see the self-righteousness out of Peter. He'll say, Jesus, this isn't necessary. You don't have to. I'll do it. I'll be a good soldier. I'll, I'll fight. And he will. He'll draw his sword. He'll try to make it happen on his own. We see his self-sovereignty. No, no, no. This isn't what I want out of my Messiah. No, no, no. I want you to follow my path, Jesus, instead of me following your path. This phrase where it says, setting your mind, the Greek word, it means to observe carefully or focus in on something, almost like like a camera lens focuses on someone. I don't know if you've seen the most recent Apple commercial. It starts with these two detectives in a car, and they kind of break the third wall, and the camera, the lens is focused on the first guy. Well, then the the second guy says, well, wait a minute. Wait wait a minute. Why am I all all blurry? And the first detective says, well, because you're just supporting cast. The camera always focuses on the most important character, character, which is me. Well, then the other guy says, wait, but what if I have a big reveal? And then all of a sudden the, the focus of the lens switches to the second guy. And he says, now the camera's focused on me. Now I'm the most important character. Listen, Jesus is saying this morning, you are blind because you are focused on yourself as the most important character. You have set your lens, your focus, your mind on yourself as the most important character. So next, what Jesus is going to do is show us what it looks like when we shift the focus from ourselves as the most important character to him as the most important character. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He gives us three things followers do. And they are all stated in the present continual sense. This means a daily, regular, continuous decision. This is not like a one-time-at-summer-camp thing. This is every day we choose to do these three things. The first one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, right now, we're in the season of Lent, and Lent is where you you pick something to deny from yourself for 40 days, and that, you know, chocolate, screens, uh, social media, all the things, and that's, you know what, that is a very good practice. You should all, we should all do that. We should all do Lent. That's not what this is talking about, though. This isn't self-discipline, because listen, frankly, you don't need Jesus for self-discipline. All kinds of people all over the world are willing to suffer and sacrifice for all kinds of things. There are people who will give up anything and everything they can just to be wealthy or just to be successful. There are people who are willing to practice unbelievable levels of self-discipline in order to have a ripped bod, have a six-pack. I clearly wouldn't know anything about that. But those people are out there. I've seen them. People can and do sacrifice greatly with the camera still focused on themselves as the main character. So that's not what this is talking about. This, the way R.T. France put it is this. It's, it's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. It's the denial of the self itself. This word deny means to disavow any connection with someone You've seen this all over the news every day with Putin. The whole world is disavowing Putin, right? Businesses don't want to do business with him. Government's disassociating from him. Planes can't fly in our airspace. Apple's not going to sell him cell phones anymore. Here's the best one I've heard. The World Taekwondo Federation stripped him of his black belt. (laughs) And you know that just burned him up. I mean, he had to hate that. Who is the person Jesus wants us to disavow? It's yourself. It's me. That's who I'm supposed to disavow. It's another way of saying remove the leaven of the self. Remove the self-righteousness. Remove the self-sovereignty. Simply put, no matter what happens in your life, good or bad, it's not about me. It's just not about me anymore. No, no, it's about him and what he wants, not about me and what I want. He is the most important character now. Then we take up the cross. Now, we've got, again, we've got to understand this, how they would have understood it back then. It's not hardship. They would not have thought, oh, a trial. They would not have mentally thought, oh, must be difficulties in your job or your marriage or financial difficulty. No, you know what they would have called that? They would have called that life. That just happens to everybody, and that is to be expected. No, no, no. For them, a cross meant one thing. It meant painful, demeaning death. That's, that's the only association they would have had. They would have grown up seeing criminals who were being shamed and tortured by being forced to carry their cross and die this painful death. Now we've got to understand here. What, What what is he saying is dying? He's not talking about a physical death. He's saying myself as the main character. It's not about me. That's what's dying. And Jesus is telling us two things about that death. Number one, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt our pride, our ego, our self-interest. They will not go quietly. They're not going to like this decision you make. Two, it will appear to those who are still blind as demeaning and shameful. It will make no sense. In fact, it will be the last thing they would ever choose from themselves. They're going to think you're crazy. And then we follow. And this word follow, it is a relational word. It means to walk with someone wherever they go and become like that person. That's what it means. So, but here we got to remember, where has Jesus just said he's going? Where is he going? Suffering, rejection, death, then resurrection. He's saying here, hey, this is my path. My destination is new life, but I'm not a lone ranger. I'm a trailblazer. Let's do one more round of say what you see. I got a picture of a couple dudes here. Does anyone know who this is? Bonus points if you do. It's a cake. <laughs> that is a good guess. That is a great guess. Uh, now, maybe, it's a, maybe someone's made a cake. I heard some back here. He kind of looks like him. No, this is Meriwether Lewis, that's a good guess, and William Clark of the famous Lewis and Clark Expedition. Now, these guys led an expedition, expedition called the Corps of Discovery all the way from St. Louis, from the Mississippi River, all the way to Oregon. And this is back a long time ago. There's no roads. They were the trailblazers. They went to find the western passage for this new nation of the United States. It took a long time, y'all. It took over one and a half years. They went over 8,000 miles. They had to travel upstream across mountain ranges. In fact, in one place in Great Falls, Montana, it took them a month just to get around one waterfall. Can you imagine being in like a year, he gets one waterfall, and you're like, well, that's a month of going around that. In the Rocky Mountains, they suffered frostbite, hunger, dehydration, freezing temperatures, and exhaustion. They almost didn't live and survive the Rocky Mountains. Now, why go to so much trouble? Is this just their idea of a good time? They were bored, had nothing to do? No, because a whole nation was going to come after them. They were blazing a trail for millions and millions of people to follow in their way. Men and women, Jesus, when he talks about going to this cross, then to new life, he is clearing a path for us to follow. He is on the road to suffering, rejection, and death, but his destination is new life. And that is the exact same path for us. And next, Jesus shows us that following him on this path, it's actually the best decision you could ever make. Look at what he says in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? He promises life. And in fact, in this passage, it's the same word. Life and soul are the same word. And so he's not just talking about, you know, breathing, having a pulse, being alive like that. He's talking about true life, real life, the kind of life that makes your soul alive. That's what he's talking about. And he's saying in our blindness, we totally misunderstand how to get true, real life. To get true, real life, you must lose it. It works the opposite of what we think. So you want to have life? You give it away. He says, for my sake and the gospel. So again, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about mission. You live, but not as the main character of your story. He is. The way Paul's going to say in Romans 12:1, is we all become a living sacrifice. As we live, we are being offered up to him. And so it means this, listen, if you're giving up something for Lent, that's great, but it's not for your sake. It's for my sake and the gospel. Now this sounds insane to the world, but it's actually the most sane thing that you could ever do. He puts it like this. He puts it in the form of a question, verse 37. Okay, well, just tell me this. What can you give in return for your soul? Literally, he's saying there, what's the exchange rate for your soul? A couple of years ago I went to Nicaragua. We do mission trips there. If you ever chance have a chance to go, you should go. It's unbelievable. And while I was there, I got one of these. This is some Nicaraguan money. This is 10 cordobas, right? And while I was there, this had some value. I could buy some stuff. Not a lot. I bought some they sell coke in Ziploc bags for some reason. Bought some of that. Bought some Coke in a Ziploc bag. I bought some uh, little souvenirs to bring back to my kids. Bought a lot of stuff. That trip was just temporary. And then I came home. And now I have this. And y'all, this won't get me a thing. This now is worthless. I can't exchange it for anything. Now, think about all the things we value now temporarily, but the nanosecond we die, and then for all eternity, have no value whatsoever. Jesus is saying to us this morning, your soul is what ultimately matters, and nothing can compensate you for losing it. Jim Elliot famously said it this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Make the smart bargain is what Jesus is telling us. Listen, Jesus isn't trying to hurt you. He is trying to help you see more than what is right in front of your face right now. And it looks crazy. I know it looks crazy from our perspective where we are to choose denial and to choose a cross. But what's crazy is partying on the Titanic instead of getting in the lifeboat. That's crazy. Anything else, listen, anything else that you live for, it will not deliver on what it promises and it is a sinking ship. It will not last. You will only find real life in following Jesus Christ. That's it. So this week, I was thinking through my life and this teaching. I have a couple questions. First one is this. Have you been avoiding a cross? Have you been avoiding your cross in your life? Listen, it's easiest for us to think. We kind of assume, hey, if it feels good, it is good. If it feels bad, it is bad. If it's fun, exciting, pleasurable, comfortable, it must be good and good for me. That makes perfect sense to us. But Jesus, Jesus is saying no. In fact, there's a lot of things that feel great, but are toxic for your soul. And you know what? There's a lot of things that feel bad now, but on the other end is life, real life But the cross. It's always going to be painful at first. It always is, which means the cross is incompatible with instant gratification. It is a square peg in the round hole of living a comfortable life. And I know, listen, I know there's many here Experiencing lots of hard things, difficult, struggling with trying circumstances, broken relationships, sin, emotional struggles. And I know nobody likes it. You don't have to like, listen, we don't want to ride on the struggle bus. We want to be on the party wagon, I know. And sometimes, you know, we just just want God to take away the things that feel bad and give us things that feel good. That's all we want. But I'm going to suggest, you know, what if you began asking God, asking him how he was trying to lead you to new life through your suffering? How is he doing it? Now, I don't know. I, you know, the details of what he's doing in everyone's life, it varies from person and each circumstances. But the underlying principle is universal. He will use whatever you're going through to heal the eyes of your heart, to help you see him and to help you die to your own self-interest. He will do that. Now, the rest of the world, listen, the rest of the world is going to avoid suffering at all costs. Numb it, drug it, fight it, deny it, whatever they can do. Will you trust Jesus enough to go through it and find new life on the other side? Second question I think it's important for all of us to ask is this. Have you been seeking balance where Jesus calls you to sacrifice? Have you been seeking balance where Jesus calls you to sacrifice? Now, our, our culture loves balance. And a lot of times balance is good. Yeah, sure. But sometimes what that turns into is, yeah, 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 follow Jesus, but just as one of all the balls you have in the air. So just add him to all the other things you're juggling. We just all turn into jugglers. And we've created this expectation sometimes where we can say yes to Jesus, but we don't have to say no to anything else. And then, you know, Again, balance is good. You should, everyone should have balance. I need to have balance. But let me tell you what's in my heart sometimes. Not always this way, but sometimes I can use balance to mean, hey, let's try to have two main characters here. Let's try to keep the camera focused maybe on both of us. Me and Jesus can be the most important character. And we got to remember that is an exercise in futility because at some point there are going to be things that the self wants that are contrary to what Jesus wants. And in that moment, the answer is not balance. The answer is we sacrifice those things. And it's not necessarily bad things. It's not necessarily sinful things. Here's how I think it works. To follow Jesus, what what Jesus is saying here is to follow him, you have to deny your right to your version of your story. See, we're all kind of like authors a little bit. And we spend a lot of our time trying to write our version of our story and the story that we want for ourselves and even for our kids, our marriages, our our career. And Jesus is saying, you got to put the pen down and say, this isn't my story anymore. This is his story. He is the one writing it. And Jesus is saying, if Jesus is right, men and women, when we do that, really, you're not sacrificing, you're gaining. You win, you get life. And I think there's something else that happens when we do that. When we do that as people who claim to follow Jesus, I think, I think our sight becomes contagious. I think this is actually how we bless and multiply in the world out there. See, there's lots of people that, you know, they notice maybe not as many people go to church and church isn't having the impact it used to. And they say, well, well, there's a lot of things we can blame. They blame politics or media or schools or something else out there. It has nothing to do with that. What's happened in our our culture is that people, they they begin to feel the emptiness of their stuff. And and they begin to realize these earthly things, this self-sovereignty, it's not all it was wrapped up to be, and it does not give me life. And they start to look around, and in that moment... The Christians around them are giving their time and their money and their energy to all the same things. And so our message becomes, well, just here's another ball to juggle. Just juggle one more thing, you know. Well, that's not going to work. If a juggler can't handle three balls, you're not going to say, hey, try four. Maybe that'll work. Our ability to balance everything does not tell people that Jesus is more valuable, and it does not call people to give their life away. But, but our willingness, men and women, to gladly deny ourselves that we may gain Christ, it tells people there is life, there is real life in Jesus, and it says He is worth it. And that's when we shine like stars in the night sky, and that's when people's eyes are opened to the true value of Jesus Christ. So this morning, is there something in your life you've been trying to maintain alongside Jesus, but maybe he's asking you today to lose your life for the sake of the gospel. If that's you this morning, trust him enough to follow him. Lose your life to gain life. But what if we're just not there yet? I mean, what if you kind of best you can say is I want to want to, but I don't really want to. You know what I mean? That's where I am sometimes. Close by saying this, a human being being willing to pick up a cross and deny themselves, it is a miracle. Every bit as much as a blind man receiving sight, which means it's really more about what he does than about what you do. Notice the order here. The order Mark gives it to us. See, Jesus goes first through the suffering and the death into new life, and what do we do? We see him. We see him clearly. We behold what he has done for us. We see that while we were still sinners, he died for us and that he is not dead, but is alive and seeing him clearly. That's what transforms us. It does in us what we would never do in ourselves. So that's why Mark wants us to know this morning. You become what you behold. Don't know what else to do this morning. Here's all you do. Yours is only to see Jesus clearly, to behold him. And as you do that, The strangest thing is going to happen in you. It's going to be the oddest thing. You will find yourself taking up your cross to follow him. And you won't be sad about it. You'll be happy about it because you will know he is worth it. So start there this week. Behold him. Behold him through his word. Behold him in prayer. Behold him through his people. Listen, that was me this week. I beheld him through his people. Pray this week, Lord, let me see you more clearly.